Our Old Testament scripture today is Exodus 21 through 6, which may be found on page 77 of your pew Bibles. Um, But right now we're going to have the prayer of illumination. So if you bow your heads with me. God of mercy, you promised to never break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak now your eternal word that does not change. May we then respond to your gracious promises by living each and every day with faithful obedience to you. Amen. And now uh, Exodus 20. Uh, 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, thank you, Carol. Uh, First step's kind of crazy. If you've uh, been joining me and reading through the Bible this year, you know that as you read from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find that the one sin that seems to upset God more than any other is the sin of idolatry. Oh, the second commandment that Carol read to us just a moment ago, not to make any idols or to bow down to them. You can see throughout the history of Israel, whenever they would turn to idols, God would become most upset with the people of Israel. You can see this specifically in Exodus chapter 32. As we read through the story of Moses, you can see that while he's up on the top of Mount Sinai, the people of Israel come to Moses and they become anxious because Moses hasn't come down. And so they come to Aaron, which is Moses' older brother, and they tell Aaron, would you make us some gods who could lead us? And so Aaron asks the people of Israel, well, bring me the gold. And ironically, this is the gold that God had given to them as they left Egypt. He says, bring me some gold and I will shave and make a God for you. Well, he makes a golden calf from the gold that God had gave to them. And, and then they begin to worship and, and to offer incenses and, and, and uh, burnt offerings to this golden calf. Well, as they do this, Lord, the Lord becomes most upset. And we read in Exodus 32, verse 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now notice as we read that text, God says to Moses, your people whom you led out of Egypt, put that in contrast to what God had said in Exodus chapter 3 when he originally called Moses to lead the people of Israel. He said this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
In Exodus chapter 3, the people of Israel are God's people. But now that they're worshiping a golden calf, a false god, an idol, they're now Moses' people. Moses, this is your problem. Not wanting to take, uh, you can realize that their idolatry has begun to hinder their relationship with God. Yes, God loves us so much that when we begin to worship idols or things that are not God, well, he becomes jealous as we read about in Exodus chapter 20 as a loving husband loves his wife and and if his life were, were to begin to have an adulterous affair, he would become jealous. So God often calls the people of Israel adulterers who have turned away from him, one true faithful God, and begun to worship idols. That's why God says he's jealous because of his great love and passion for us. As you read just a moment ago in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, you shall not bow down to these gods for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If there's one sin that seems to upset God more than any other in the Bible, it seems to be the sin of idolatry. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, defines idolatry this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Whenever we give precedence to anything above God, we're, we're guilty of idolatry. And Keller points out in his best-selling book, Counterfeit Gods, that even good things like our family and our careers and our relationships can become idols if we give them precedence over God, if we make them ultimate things. We can deify these good things if we make them the center of our lives. As Keller explains that here in the 21st century, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Our culture actually celebrates that. Every year, there's Forbes 400 wealthiest people in America, and the focus of these articles are to talk about how people have gone from 94th place to 54th place, and what it was they did in their business to become higher in wealth, and we celebrate the wealth, the riches, the finances, the money of the wealthiest people in our country, but we never talk about their marriages, or their relationships with their neighbors, or their relationship with God. It's just simply about how they made more money this year. Yes, we live in an idolatrous culture. We're constantly being told, particularly this time of year, that that things will make us happy. Every Christmas season, this idolatrous mindset is on full display, is it not? How can we make sure that we don't become guilty of idolatry this Christmas season, that we don't begin to put other things before God? To find out, I believe we should turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. It may be found on page 1116 of your Red Pew Bible. I would encourage you to keep your Red Pew Bible open as I preach through the message and refer to the text continually. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord, that you inspired Luke put pen to paper to give us an orderly account of the life and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. Well, Lord, now as we read this text, we pray that once again you might speak and that we might hear from you, that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. 
Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18, listen to the word of the Lord. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it then said, Well, then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this conversation that Jesus has between this rich ruler and Jesus is actually uh, in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew tells us that this rich ruler is not just rich, but he's also young. He's the young, rich ruler. He's a go-getter. He's a hardworking man who, who at an early age has acquired great wealth through working hard. Everything he's done has been successful, and so he is the rich, young ruler, And so it's no shock that he would come to Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because everything he does, he's been blessed to get. And so he has a doing mindset. But do you see the irony of that question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Since when do we do anything to inherit anything? Inheritance is, is a gift. We don't do anything. It's simply about who we are. Clearly, this rich young ruler doesn't understand the gospel of grace. For grace, as we know, is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace. It's simply given to us as the free gift that it is. And we receive it through faith. Well, Jesus hears this question, challenges him to say, well, why do you call me good? The the rich young ruler is trying to flatter Jesus by saying, good teacher. Jesus can see right through that. Who is good but God? He wants the man to turn his heart towards God. And then he asks, listen again, he says, you know, well, you know the commandments, and listen to the, specifically the five commandments that he lists, Jesus does. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Do you notice 
the five commandments that Jesus fails to mention? He fails to mention that you shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment and the ten commandments. You shall not make an idol and worship it, the second commandment. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment. You shall, not honor the, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, the fourth commandment. And then finally, he fails to mention the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. The first four commandments of the ten commandments are about our relationship with God. And the last commandment has to do with our relationship with stuff. So why do you think Jesus only lists these other five and not the, the first four and the last commandment in his list? I believe he knows that this rich young ruler struggles with idolatry. This, Jesus knows this man's heart, and he knows that his heart is not right with God, that his relationship God, with God is, is very weak. And Jesus doesn't argue with him when he lists those, first, those other five, and he says, oh, I've done these since my youth. Jesus doesn't argue with them. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen. You know, he's honored his mother and father. He's done good things. But when it comes to his relationship with God, he still falls woefully short. Jesus knows this. And so he challenges the man. He makes sure that he doesn't allow money to become his idol. And so he challenges the man to sell all that he has. Yes, this man was more passionate about pursuing money than he was about pursuing God. The fact is, in the 21st century, in America, we can make the same mistake if we're not careful. On January 5th, 2009, Adolf Merkel, the fifth wealthiest man in Germany, told his wife that he was going for a walk that evening. Adolf Merkel never returned. At the time, Adolf Merkel was worth $9.2 billion. When he decided to lay down his life and to commit suicide in front of a train, why would a man worth $9.2 billion, the fifth wealthiest man in Germany, commit suicide. Well, his family released this statement after his death. The desperate situation of his companies caused by the financial crisis of 2008, the uncertainties of the last few weeks, and his powerlessness to act broke the passionate family entrepreneur, and he took his own life. You see, before this financial crisis of 2008, Adolf Merkel was actually worth $12.8 billion, and he was the 36th richest man in the world. But after the financial crisis of 2008 and a really poor investment in Volkswagen, he had fallen uh, down to 94th place in the wealthiest people in the world, and he had lost $3.6 billion. So now he only had $9.2 billion, and the loss of money was more than he could bear. But he still had $9.2 billion. Does anyone see the, the weirdness of that? I mean, how could someone with $9.2 billion commit suicide over losing $3.6 billion? Especially when you still have that kind of money. I and mean, that's more money than Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, has. How is it this man could commit his life suicide after a loss of $3.6 when he still had $9.2 billion? He was still the fifth richest man in all of Germany. Why did, I, why did Merkel commit suicide? We know from the word of God, it's because of idolatry. Merkel's identity, his peace, his security was was found in his money. And when he knew he wouldn't be able to make as much, when his ability to to create and, and control his companies to help leverage and make more money was disappearing, it was more than he could bear. And as he lost his money, he lost his sense of identity, and he lost his will to live. Now, admittedly, any one of us would be anxious if we lost a lot of money. I mean, that, that, that certainly would cause concern. I remember in 2008 when the stock market crashed, 
I became a little anxious, particularly when I was serving at a church where after December, we were a million dollars behind in our budget and we had to lay off several staff members. That, that makes you anxious. There's no, uh, no normal person wouldn't be a little bit nervous about that. That's a common reaction at the loss of money. But as followers of Jesus, we know that we are able to get up again, that our identity is not found in the amount of money we have. We know that ultimately God is with us and he's never going to leave us nor forsake us in Jesus Christ. Our identity is not found in how much money we have, but rather in our relationship with Jesus. We are not our FICO score. We are children of the Most High God. Unfortunately, the rich young ruler in our text this morning, he doesn't seem to get that. His identity is wrapped up in his money. Jesus knows that he struggles with the idol of money. And so he asks them in verse 22, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I want to be real clear here this morning. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Jesus is telling this rich young ruler because he has the idol of money that he needs to sell all the money that he has. He's not necessarily telling all of us that we need to sell all the money we have, right? Okay, that's good to know. I don't make you too anxious about this. In fact, as a former finance major, I can tell you that would be really poor stewardship. If every Christian in the world sold everything they have and gave it away, that would not be good stewardship because then, well, then all the pagans would owe everything, right? God doesn't want that, right? In fact, if you read the Bible and you read all of it, you'll see there are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible who do a lot of good. King David and King Solomon and, of course, Lydia, she's very wealthy and she helps start the church in Philippi. And Joseph of Arimathea has, has money so that he's able to purchase the tomb that Jesus is going to rise out of. I mean, God has wealthy people who do good with the money that he's entrusted to them. Jesus isn't telling us that we need to sell all that we have. He's telling this rich young ruler who worships money more than God that he needs to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. So what is Jesus telling us exactly this morning? I believe Jesus is telling us three things specifically. Jesus is reminding us, first of all, where our priorities must be in life. Secondly, Jesus is telling us how we can avoid the deadly sin of greed. And thirdly, Jesus is helping us see what, that we shouldn't, that ultimately, what should be our motivation forgiving. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. By asking this rich young ruler to sell all that he had, Jesus is looking into the heart of this man and asking him to give up his idol of money so his ultimate identity will be found in Jesus and following him, not in his stuff. After all, just a few chapters before in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus has been talking to his disciples and he tells them, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. By asking the rich young ruler to sell everything and give to the poor, Jesus is telling him that he needs to clarify where his priorities lie, with God or with money. But you can't serve both. Where do our priorities lie today? You know, one way for us to determine where our priorities lie and to find out what the priorities of anyone is is to look at their day timer and to look at their bank account. How do we spend our time and how do we spend our money? Because ultimately, our time and our money are are limited. No matter how big your checking account may be, the fact is that, that there's a limit to that number. And so how do we spend our time and how do we spend our money If people were to look at the way we spend our time and if they were to look at the way we spend our money, could they tell that God is a priority for us in our life today? You know, every day we should 
pray and ask God to guide us. Lord, help me to see how I can be a good steward of the time and the talents and the treasures that you've entrusted to me. For we read in Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 follows Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the most popular psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right after that beautiful psalm about the Lord being our shepherd and how he provides for us, we read in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, for he's created it. All that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. So how are we using the time and the talents and the treasures that God has given to us? Can people look at the way we spend our time and the way that we spend our money, and can they tell today that God is clearly a priority for us? This is we read through the Gospel of Luke. We can see that Jesus is telling us that that we should give our money away. He says this repeatedly, give our money to help the poor so so that God might be glorified. But our culture today is often telling us that we need to spend money on ourselves so that we can be happy. With the flood of advertisements that we face every Christmas season, we're led to believe that, well, that greed is actually good. We're told in our consumerist culture that the more we have, the happier we'll be. However, a recent study from Harvard Business Review reveals that having more money doesn't necessarily make you happier. In fact, it, it makes you less sociable, less generous, and overall less happy. The study found that the wealthiest people are often more isolated. The wealthier people become They begin to develop this superiority complex over others, and they begin to isolate themselves and put up boundaries around others. And their circle of friends actually often grows smaller. They value independence more than connectedness. Furthermore, this study discovered that the more people make, the less they actually give as a percentage of their overall income. This isolation and this greed actually leads to unhappiness. In fact, at the same time, a study was done at Notre Dame that said the more we give, the happier we'll be. As Jesus says, and Paul quotes him in the book of Acts, it truly is more blessed to give than receive. When Jesus invites this rich young ruler to to sell all that he has and give to the poor, he's actually showing him the path to happiness, the path to joy, the path to peace by getting rid of the idol of money and turning his heart solely to Christ so that he might follow him. As Frenchman, mathematician, physicist, and theologian Blaise Pascal once wrote, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. I really appreciate what John Wesley has to say about giving. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist Church. My father was Methodist, so I know they're good people. You know, right across the street there. And I love those Methodists. Uh, Great songs, right, Norman? They have great Charles and John Wesley wrote some great hymns. Well, one of the things that John Wesley said about money was he said, in our lives, we should make as much as we can Save as much as we can so that we can give as much as we can. John Wesley actually practiced this in his own life. Because he was a scholar and writer, he was very well published and he made quite a bit of money. And in his life, he learned how to live on 30 pounds a year. He said, that's all I really need to live on. So he lived uh, humbly on 30 pounds a year. One year, he actually made 1,400 pounds, which was a whole lot of money back then. And he gave 1,370 pounds away and he only lived on 30 pounds He gave 98% of his income away and lived on just over 2%. Giving, it helps us battle the sin of greed. But should that be our motivation for giving, battling greed to avoid the sin of greed? Notice that after telling this rich young ruler to give all that he has so that he might more faithfully follow God, Jesus pulls his disciples to the side and we read in the last few verses of our text this morning, Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. 
And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus, after telling this rich young ruler to give all that he has, is helping his disciples see that he's going to give all that he has. Jesus didn't just give 10% to save us. He gave everything. He gave his own life. And that should be our ultimate motivator in giving, giving in gratitude for all that God has already given us. I, I think the Apostle Paul says it beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where he writes, after talking to the church in Corinth about the big gift they're about to give to the church in Jerusalem, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that his poverty might become rich. Isn't that the message of Christmas? That Jesus, God's one and only son, who who had all the glory and the riches of heaven, humbled himself and became a, a baby in a lowly manger. And this baby grew up among us and he taught us and he healed us and ultimately he died for us and paid the ultimate price so that our sins might be atoned for, so that we might be forgiven. Yes, it's out of gratitude for Christ's great sacrifice who gave us everything that we should give back to him so that he might be glorified. What are we doing with the time and the talents and the treasures that we have this Christmas season? Are we giving in gratitude for all that God has given to us? Every day we should ask, we should reflect on the cross of Christ and his great sacrifice, and we should ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see how I can make the most of the time and the talents and the treasures that you've given to me, that you might be glorified in them. One real immediate way that we can use our our time and our talents this Christmas season is by is by inviting someone to join us in the celebration. As you saw in that video, people want to know what, when, where, and why. A lot of people this Christmas season don't really understand the why of Christmas. Why are we celebrating that God was so generous to us that he would give us his son? What a great opportunity we have to invite them to join us as a part of that Christmas celebration. In a moment, I'm going to say a closing prayer, and I'm going to pray that the Lord might lay a name on your heart. Someone that you might invite, whether it be a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor or a family member or a friend, someone that you might invite to join us this Christmas. So they might join us in celebrating Christmas, the, the greatest gift that God has ever given, and celebrate in joining us in recognizing all the idols of this culture and avoiding those so that we might live in true peace and true joy, following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for the great gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's your generosity towards us that leads us to want to give back to you in gratitude for all that you've given to us. And Lord, we live in a culture, a consumerist culture that's always telling us that happiness is found in the things that we have, but we know that happiness, true joy, true peace is only going to be found in you as we seek to live for you first and foremost. So Lord, help us all to make you a priority this Christmas season. Help us to pursue you first above all things. Help us, Lord, to to give in gratitude, to avoid the, the sin of greed. And Lord, may our giving always be driven by your giving for us, by your generosity towards us. Lord, we thank you for the friends and the coworkers and the classmates and the neighbors that you've put into our sphere of influence. Lord, I pray that in this moment you might quietly place someone on our heart 
a name, someone that we might invite to join us this Christmas so they can join us in the celebration of the greatest gift the world has ever known. Oh, Lord, may you guide us as we seek to make the most of the time, the talents, and the treasures that you've given to us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. In gratitude for God's great love, in gratitude for God's great generosity in giving us his Son, let us continue our worship this morning by giving God's tithes and our offerings.